All right. Good morning once again. Good to be with you. Thank you for joining us on Super Bowl Sunday. I, as well as you, I'm sorry that it's the Chiefs and the 49ers, but we can't really do anything about that, except for them over there. They're, uh, yeah. Um, if, uh, if you're visiting, glad that you're here today. We are in the Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, and uh, starting in chapter 3, all the way through chapter 4 and the, the first verse of chapter 5. And that seems like it's its own unit. And so that's what we're in today. If you have your Bible, it'll also be up on the screen. Um, and uh, what we're looking at today, what we see in the song, is their wedding. Um, song of Songs is, a, if you're, you're new or you're visiting today, it's a, uh, it's a poem, it's wisdom literature in the Bible. And it is about uh, a romantic relationship, about a marriage and God's wisdom for that. And today we're looking at the wedding. And I, I do love the way that it's written because you can visualize it. It feels very cinematic when you read through it. And so you'll, you'll see. And then the, the man, uh, the, the husband's reaction to his bride on the wedding, on the wedding night. He's just in such awe of her, which is really nice. So we're going to see all that. It, it feels like, you know those uh, videos, you see like wedding videos where the groom sees the bride for the first time and he just like breaks down crying. Um, like that's nice. It's a little embarrassing, but you know, I think it's kind of fine. I just like, like it's nice. I just don't understand where that feeling comes from because uh, uh, before we got married, so like I love my wife, by the way, it's not that, and like I think she's, I, I think she's beautiful, but she would like tease me before our wedding, she'd be like, oh, are you going to cry when you see me? And I was like, no, <laughs> and, then, and I didn't, and like the thing is, like I don't know if it's just me, but like I just like don't have easy access to those feelings to like pull them up, like they're in there somewhere doing who knows what, but like they're hidden, right, like for most men. Um, and so, like, I don't really cry off. You know the thing that does get me? So, like, that wouldn't get me. The thing that gets me, if um, those videos where colorblind people get the special glasses and they see color for the first time and they start crying, I'm gone. Like, that's the, <laughs> that's the key that unlocks my emotions for whatever reason. If you're a therapist, let's talk after service. Um, now, joking aside, I'm not, like, a heartless, emotionless, like, I've changed in the last 10 years, and so, you know, don't worry about me. Don't, uh, uh, anyways, the wedding. We see the wedding today. We see it in two parts. We see the wedding celebration itself, and we see the, the wedding night. And those two parts, they show us uh, two qualities that should be present, should have a big presence in a marriage. Uh, they're meant to be part of marriage. God's designed them to be part of marriage. Uh, when it exists in your relationship with your spouse, that is when you're going to have the best marriage. And those two qualities are joy and intimacy. Uh, in a marriage, you should delight in one another, have joy in one another, and uh, be intimate and intimately known you know, by, by the other person. And those two things go hand in hand. Like, those are connected. It's not one or the other. I don't know of any marriages that have, like, tons of joy, uh, but no, there's, there's no intimacy at all. Uh, or marriages that are, like, very intimate, lots of trust and close connection, but they have no joy or delight in each other. Like, they're connected. Um, and as a clarifier, when I say intimacy, I'm not only referring to sexual intimacy, 
uh, I mean the two becoming one in both body and spirit. Uh, Their whole selves, their whole lives being joined together. Um, The Bible uses the euphemism knowing for sex sometimes. So like if you read a verse in the Bible that goes, and then he knew her, like that's what it's referring to. Um, And it's a a fitting expression because there is like this deeper knowledge that you gain of one another through that union. And uh, so like, you know, lots of people here, I've met many of you, you know me a little bit. Um, You don't know me biblically and uh, you're not going to either, so don't try anything. I'm a married man. Um, We're going to explore in the song uh, these two aspects of marriage, the marriage relationship, joy and intimacy. Why these things are so precious, why they're so important, what it is that they do, uh, what hinders them, and how can they grow? How can we increase these things over time? And then, as we've been doing throughout the series, and so if, you're, if you've been with us, this isn't new to you, but we're going to take what we see in God's wisdom for marriage, and then we're going to use that to understand Jesus, understand Jesus' love for us, understand our relationship with Jesus, because the Bible tells us that marriage is a reflection of that relationship we have with Jesus. And so, uh, so that's what we're doing today. We have a good amount to read through, and we're going to get right into it. Chapter 3, verse 6 says this, and this is the, the woman speaking. Uh, what is that coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made it with posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Uh, the, the woman, she's describing here the wedding procession. Uh, and again, maybe, like, we talked about different ways that people interpret this. Some people think, like, these are actual events that happened and are being recorded, or this is, you know, kind of a, the scenes that are made up to form this ideal picture of a marriage. Um, I think it's more that. Um, but, but whatever, like, interpretive choice you make, there, there is so much meaning that we gain from this, um, it seems like, you know, the man, this, he's arriving to his wedding, and when they leave together, when he leaves with his bride, this is what's going to take them away. Uh, and I'll mention here, because I do hear this question sometimes, and I think people are honestly curious about it. Um, everyone knows that weddings tend to be fairly expensive events, and, uh, and so, like, the question that gets raised is, like, just morally, is, is it, is it morally justified to have kind of an extravagant event for a wedding? Like, isn't that wasteful, or is that, is that unjustified? Like, where, where's that line, and what does that mean? Um, and so I don't think there's, like, a definite rule that you could just put down, because, like, the Bible doesn't make a definite rule, and when we start doing that, that's when we become legalistic. Uh, I, I do think it's more about your own heart and the decisions that you're making, but like as a general guideline for wisdom, you definitely don't want to put yourself into debt over your wedding. 
you know, and you don't want to, like, bankrupt your financial future over it, and so, like, keep that in mind when you're making the decisions. Um, but I will say, it's, it's not a sin to have a big celebration or to desire it and see that as something good. Like, there are occasions where that is what's called for because of the, what it means, because of the meaning of it. Um, when Mary breaks the expensive ointment over Jesus, and, and Judas goes, oh, that's wasteful, like, how could you do that? Uh, Jesus says, he doesn't criticize her. He doesn't say, like, well, you know, you could have been wiser with this. You could have helped more people with this. He doesn't criticize her. He says, she's done a beautiful thing for me. Here's an occasion where it's fitting to, to, to kind of go above and beyond like that because of the meaning of the moment. We see Jesus at a wedding. The only time we see him at a wedding, he's not sitting at the wedding with his arms crossed, criticizing it like, this is a little much. You know, I think uh, you could have scaled that down. Uh, no, he adds to it. He turns the water into wine. Like a wedding is one of those occasions. And even the work that Jesus is doing in the world, the whole work of redemption that he is doing in the world culminates, we see, in Revelation with his bride, the church, you and me, sitting at the wedding feast, his wedding feast, big celebration. Like that's what it's moving towards. Like this is one of those occasions where it is fitting to celebrate big. You know, if you want that big celebration, you can go for it. If you want to be more scaled back and, and just, like, you can have that too. But just, you know, whatever you do, if you're planning a wedding right now, just be wise about it. You know, don't be, don't put yourself into debt or bankrupt your future over it. But, but you can, like, this is one of the times where y you want to make the moment as meaningful as you can in, in this kind of, uh, you know, greater than normal putting into it that, that that's called for. Um, and I love this. So verse 11, this, this is his wedding day. And that's what it tells us. The wedding day is the, the day of the gladness of his heart. Like his heart is full of joy. He's delighting in the one whom he's marrying. And I think it's because of that joy he has, we get this kind of focus on this procession that he's put together. Um, and he's done all this. He's, uh, this is his part of the work for the arrangements. And, and he's sort of happy to put all this effort and pour all this generosity out because of who it's for. Uh, coming from the wilderness like columns of smoke. It always uh, recalls the image of Israel in the wilderness being led by God. And then from there she describes this fragrance that's attached to it, like all these perfumes and, um, and it's a litter. So it's like a bed or a couch that has those poles on it and people are you know, bearing it on their shoulders and walking in, and it's like there's a veil around it, and this kind of, uh, you know, luxurious carriage, he calls it, uh, made with silver and gold, expensive wood. The seat is purple, and like, if you took Latin in high school like I did, uh, one of the things that they tell you is that purple is like this really expensive dye in the ancient world because it could only be gotten by diving for like oysters, and that's why it's associated with royalty because it's so expensive. And so he's like pulling out all the stops. All the most precious things are going into this. Um, Solomon, like this says Solomon. Maybe it is Solomon himself, or maybe it's, uh, you know, just the, the man is being compared to Solomon. Um, but he's, he's made the carriage or, you know, commissioned it to be made. Uh, and it's being put together. It's, it's inlaid with love. Like so much care and attention is going into it. Uh, surrounding the litter are 60 mighty men, um, 
And if you know the life of David, Solomon's father, king of Israel, uh, this warrior king who's, uh, you know, renowned and famous, and um, he was known for having this group, the 30 mighty men, uh, who, who are all, you know, kind of famous, made a name for themselves, warriors, and, uh, and here for this wedding, and, and with the figure of Solomon, is like, now we've doubled it. You know, we've, we've gone above and beyond even more than the legendary King David. Um, and all that we're getting from this is the amount of thought and effort and care and resources being poured into this wedding processional that's bringing him to his wedding. It's going to bring the two of them away. Um, you know sometimes that y- you really pour yourself out for something and you just feel drained by it? Because it's an obligation. Like you have to do something for work. You have to like put all this effort in or it's if you're in school or it's, uh, you're doing something for the sake of someone else, but it's someone who like kind of bothers you. Um, you can do it, you can do it, but it feels like a sacrifice. Um, when you pour yourself out for the sake of someone or something that brings you immense joy, it doesn't feel like sacrifice. It, it feels like it's a privilege to do this. I love that I get to do this. And this is what makes joy such an important aspect of marriage, uh, that you really delight in your spouse because when you do, all the work that's required in marriage, all the things that you could look at and say like, that's effort, that's work, that's sacrifice, those things become easier. Those things themselves become a joy to do because you have joy and delight in the one that you're doing them for. Like, it's not a burden. I want to do these things. And this is easier in the beginning of a relationship than it is at the end, because in the beginning, you don't really know each other all that well, and you still have, like, that infatuation, like, the feeling of butterflies in your stomach. Um, The longer you've been in a relationship, like, as the years go by, you've had time now. You've had time to fail your spouse. They've had time to fail you. You pick up on things, because now you spend all your time with them, uh, that like you find kind of annoying, like why do you breathe like that? Um, or like, you know, that would be, you probably have resentment if you don't like the way they breathe. Uh, but like little things. Um, and here's where people go wrong. And, and maybe, like if you're m- married and, uh, and you find that your joy in your spouse is weakening over time, it's not strengthening or it's not staying, um, maybe this is a wrong step that, that you've made. Um, where what you've done is you've set an expectation on your spouse that uh, their responsibility is to fulfill all the the needs that I have in order to make me happy and and I can live a happy life. I need them to be doing all the right things. If they're doing all the right things, if they're being what I need them to be, then I'll be happy and my life will be be good. is an unfair expectation. (laughs) I think you're saying amen to that part of it, not like, yes, she does. Um, Yeah. When you make your spouse the primary source of your joy and you put that expectation on them, it's an unfair expectation. They're not created to be that for you. They are a blessing to you. You do get joy from them but not, not in an ultimately fulfilling way, not in a, a life, you know, fulfillment way. Uh, that's Jesus' job. 
because Jesus is perfect, and Jesus does perfectly meet all the needs that you have in order for you to have joy and have a joyful life, and how he loves you, how he forgives you, how he's committed to you, he never fails you, he saves you, he gives you the promise of eternal life, he gives your life purpose, like he does all those things that you need, he does them perfectly. It's an unfair expectation to set on your spouse, to, to want them to be that for you, and when you do that, it is inevitable, you will be disappointed. You'll be disappointed, and you will disappoint them if they're doing the same for you. And it's already a wrong step, like you're already on the wrong foot if you are approaching your marriage full of the thought of, of here's what I think uh, my, my spouse should be doing and, and what I wish they were doing for me, if they did this and this and this and if they would improve that. Um, you can get there, you can acknowledge those things, but it's not the first step. The first step is looking at yourself. What should I be doing? Where, where do I need to be corrected? Where do I need to grow? Where could I be doing better? Once you have that in place, then you can start the conversation with, with your spouse. Like, you know, some, some things that you'd like to see growth in them, and, you know, they could be doing the same for you, but, but if you're starting on that wrong foot, it comes off as, as accusation, and it comes off as hypocrisy because you're ignoring the things in your own life. It's when the best marriages, the best marriages have two people that share the same thought, and that thought is, I'm going to put my uh, more importance on my spouse's joy than I am on my own. Two people who share that same thought. Uh, each of you are thinking of, wait, how could I make their life better? How could I make them happier? How could I be a blessing to them? What could I do for them? When you have two people that are doing that, it's easy. Joy is easy. It grows. It's there. How could it not? You have this person in your life who they're thinking about your happiness more than they're thinking about their own. Who wouldn't want to live with someone like that? And then when you are living with someone like that, it's so much easier for you to reciprocate and do the same for them. It's when you slide into selfishness uh, and, and place more importance on your own joy than on theirs. Either one of you slides into this or both of you slide into this that's when you start keeping score over things. Uh, you keep the record of wrongs, and maybe you start adjusting your behavior based on that. You start withholding, like, well, I'm not going to do this until I see that. And, and when you do that, um, it's going to have an effect on them and, and on the way they treat you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to breed the same sort of behavior back at you that you're showing to them, and it just gets worse. We talked uh, maybe last week about the negative feedback cycle. Um, selfishness is such a joy killer in marriage, and it's ironic, isn't it? Because selfishness is placing more importance on your own happiness, but when you do that in marriage, you get less and less and less, less joy in your marriage. It's when you're selfless, and you put the joy of the other person ahead of your own, that's when your joy in marriage grows and grows and grows. Joy can last in marriage. If you're like newly married or you're, you're getting married and you kind of are hearing this and think about like, you know, well, that sounds difficult. I mean, it is, but it's not like this foregone conclusion that the, the longer you spend with this person, the less joy you'll have with them and it's just going to get to a point where, you know, you 
you end up much less happy then than you are today. Uh, some of you in this room have been married for a long time, and, and you know that joy can last in a marriage. You know, the joy has lasted. I mean, it doesn't mean that there's not difficult times and seasons. Um, you know, and, and maybe for some of you, you've, uh, you, your experience is that joy has not lasted in marriage, or it's not lasting the way that you wish it would. But you can get it back. It takes unselfishness and a marriage that's centered on Jesus where he is the primary source of that fulfillment and joy, I mean, that makes your unselfishness so much easier, and then you both are able to place higher importance on the other person's joy than your own, and it's able to to thrive and grow and, and be exactly what you want it to be. And then it makes all that other work, it's not like a sacrifice or a labor to do these things for the person you're married to, it's a joy to do those things for them. So, that is the joy that we see in marriage. Taking a look at intimacy. Chapter four, verse one says this. And this is the the man speaking. He says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. We're all pretty clear on what all that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, Chapter four, this is the wedding night. As the two of them together in private now, and, and this, this is how he starts. He starts off really well, and like, like it's accessible. You are beautiful, my love. Classic. No notes. Uh, your eyes are doves. That sounds nice. Like, we don't know exactly what it means, but like, that seems like a nice comparison. Your hair is like a flock of goats. This is where like cultural distance makes that hard for us to see that as like a compliment. You know, because like you don't, you shouldn't compare your wife to a goat. Uh, I did once in my marriage. But I, I like, I just like, you know, you come up with pet names for people. It was like, I called her a baby goat and she like gets all offended. And I was like, well, baby goats are actually really cute and they're like really soft. And then like we watch videos and she's like, okay, that's fine. Um, <laughs> no, but, but the cultural distance between us and the author of the song of Solomon, Solomon, uh, is vast, and like they're a pastoral society. Livestock is very much a part of their life and the way of life, and like if you put yourself into that culture, you could see how this is like actually a pretty creative and, and nice compliment, where Gilead is, uh, is a beautiful place, rolling hills, and so like a massive flock of goats with a, a glossy coat kind of all running down that hill and the, the light catching them at different angles. You can see like that's the tangles of your hair coming down. Like that could be a pretty nice image. So don't, don't get all, you know, high and mighty towards song of songs and that, you know, like I'd never call someone a goat. You would if you were back then and you were smart. Um, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes coming up from, for washing all bear twins. He's saying she has nice teeth, and they're all there. Like, that's what the compliment is. 
But it's better than that because, again, it's taking an image that they'd be familiar with and, like, the, the sheep, when the wool grows because they want to harvest it, uh, but it's been on for a while. It's got, like, dirt and all kinds of stuff in there. Now they're freshly shaved. It's, like, pure white. They're down being washed in the river. They're coming up, and you see the reflection. That's each one bearing its twin. You see the reflection of it, and it's just this nice, like, pastoral, beautiful scene. And, uh, and he's saying, like, that's what, I, when I see your smile, that's what I see, like, this beautiful thing. Um, he compliments her lips and her cheeks. Like, those are pretty standard things. You know, we would do things like that today. Uh, but then your neck is like the Tower of David. Uh, on it hang a thousand shields. That's another one that's like, you know, just because we're culturally distanced. What, is, what does that mean? He's probably complimenting her jewelry. She's wearing like a necklace. Uh, that, that is covering her whole neck, and it kind of remind. And, and he's comparing it to this place, the Tower of David, on which uh, you know soldiers who have made a name for themselves and have retired, they hang their shields on the wall. It's like a record of their courage and their victory, and and it's this like great dignified thing. And he's like, that's kind of the comparison that I see uh, when when I see your neck. And you notice he starts at the top and he's he's moving down. So we got hair and eyes and. Uh, lips and teeth and cheeks and neck. And then the next thing he says is, um, is that your two breasts are like two fawns, two baby deer, right? And uh, just like the baby goats, they're, they're soft and like they're, like you could see how that could be a nice thing. What I like about um, this, this compliment and what I think it helps us understand about the man in the song and this kind of idealized like what a husband should be. Um, if you were going to try to approach two fawns, like if you had some baby deer in your yard and you wanted to go pet them, like the way to approach a baby fawn is not to rush at it and like tackle it. Like he's going to run away, you know? You can't, you can't be, you have to go slowly. You have to go gently. And I think that we see that in his approach to her. Um, and I think we see that because uh, what we read next, and so remember, this is the wedding night, and what we read next, uh, verse 6, says, Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart the peaks of Amana from the peak of Sinir and Harman, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. And the, you know, my sister, my bride thing, that's, uh, it was a, a greeting that they'd call each other in their society. You'd call another one, like my sister or my brother. So there's not like a weird thing with that. Um, he pauses here. He pauses here. The, this, on the wedding night, in the first five verses, he is speaking and complimenting her physical appearance. He gets to her breasts, and he stops. We read this, and then after this, he continues and, and culminates in, in what the wedding night uh, culminates in. Why, why does he pause here? It's not like we know for certain, but it does seem reasonable to think the reason might be that in this moment when they're about to do this thing for the first time 
she's, she's nervous, and she's shy about it, and he picks up on that, and so he pauses to affirm to her, hey, I love you, right? This is how much I love you. I just want you to be away with me. I just want to be together with you. You've captivated me. Like, I belong to you. Like, one glance of your eyes, one look from you, and you, you have my heart. The physical intimacy, it's not just about the physical. His heart belongs to her. Like, the physical act is an expression of their love in that emotional connection, that love for one another. That's such a part of it. And, and he's affirming that for her. And once he's done that, that's when he continues, and we see in verse 10, he says, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride, how much better is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your oils than any spice, your lips drip, drip nectar, my bride, honey and milk are under your tongue, the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed, your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choices fruits, Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. She says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with any milk. And then the chorus of the others, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And I think that's just there as, as an affirmation, the validation of the people around them, that they support them, and this is a beautiful thing. I don't think it's telling us that they're there with them. Um, how beautiful is your love better than wine? We've seen that before. We saw that in chapter one, if you've been with us. And, uh, and when we were there, we were kind of talking about the different interpretive choices people make with the book, that some people think it's chronological. They meet, they, they date, uh, they get married, they grow older in marriage, and, and it's kind of progressing that way. And that, that's not really the way that, that I see it. And it seems like there's snapshots of marriage from different points. And so chapter one opens with them already being married. And there she says, your love is better than wine. And now we find those words originally came from him, came from, from their wedding night. And, and she's taken that and she's, she's agreed with him. Like, yeah, it is. I, I love this love that we have together. It's better than wine. And now like, I'm not gonna go like too deep into this one. You can see it all for yourself in here. Like you guys are smart. You can use your imagination. Um, this is their wedding night and, and you can just kind of figure out what's being referred to. I'm not gonna be the guy, like the pastor, who gets a clip on YouTube for like spending way too long in these images. And uh, you know, you guys, you guys can figure it out. I'm not gonna be able to find a way to say it as tastefully as the Song of Songs does. And so, uh, so you can read it. What I will say, what I will say about uh, the verses here and what I really love about them is in verse 13, the word for orchard, an orchard of pomegranates, uh, some translations make it garden. It's kind of a rare word in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word is, is uh, pardas, and it is the word that we get um, 
paradise from. So like our word paradise comes from that word for garden. And, uh, and so the garden that he's describing here, like all the things that he puts in it, uh, pomegranates, henna, nard, saffron, calamus, cinnamon, frankincense, myrrh, aloe, what you might not get just from like a casual reading of this if you don't grow these things yourself is that this is an impossible garden. All these things cannot exist in the same place at the same time because some of those plants don't have the same growing condition. They come from far away and they need to be traded with to even be brought to Israel. Um, it's kind of like if you garden it all and you know that like where we are in New Jersey, we're zone 7A and there are plants that are able to survive here, um, but a plant that's rated for zone 6 would like die over our winter. It just couldn't, couldn't be there. It's kind of like that. The, the plants that are being described here, they can't all exist together, even though they're all like these beautiful, have these great fragrances, and like you would want this. And it's kind of like this mythical paradise garden that he's comparing her to. And it's almost like on the wedding night, being joined together, he's, he's like, I feel like I'm going back to Eden. And she responds to him. And she invites him into his garden. And I just love the way they talk about it. Like he's comparing her to a garden. He, she goes, yeah, I'm your garden. Come into the garden. Um, I mentioned this in the introduction. The, uh, the, the euphemism the Bible uses for, for sex sometimes is knowledge, knowing someone. Um, in the beginning, in the garden, in Genesis, when it was all created uh, before there was sin, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. They had nothing to cover up. After they took the fruit, the forbidden fruit, and they ate it, and sin entered the world, they hid. They, they covered up their nakedness. They hid from God. They tried to hide what they did from God. You know, when he questions them about it, he gives them all, they give all kinds of uh, excuses and justifications for it. Um, but there's no more of that freeness of just, I could be naked and unashamed. I can be an open book. Everything could be known about me. Now, people are closed. We spend so much of our lives doing that, hiding and covering up. Like, there are things in us. There are thoughts in us, desires in us, things in our past, things about us that we don't want other people to know. We want to keep them hidden. We're, we're afraid of being judged because of them. What having intimacy with your spouse in marriage is, like what it's meant to be and what it's meant to do for you, is allow you to know this person completely. They get to know you completely. Nothing covered up. Nothing hidden. And you still embrace one another. Intimacy uh, calls for vulnerability. You have to be vulnerable to allow yourself to be known to be uncovered, and in order to have that vulnerability, you need to have trust. And, and when you do, when you have that level of trust in someone, and you can be vulnerable, and you know that they're still gonna embrace you, that's a huge blessing in your life, because you can unburden yourself to this person. You don't have to like put up all the walls, and all the masks, and all the layers, you can just let all those things down, and just be with that person, and that's great having that kind of intimacy, that intimate connection, 
as an incredible blessing because it fulfills this deep-seated need that each person has. And so Tim Keller says this. Tim Keller was a pastor and an author and just an amazing guy, and he died recently, but I love this quote. He says this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. I wish I could write something that cool. <laughs> I can't, so I'll just read it for you. But uh, being, being known but not loved is our greatest fear. We are so afraid, and everyone has this, we're afraid that we're not good enough. We're afraid that we're not actually worthy of being loved and worthy of being accepted. We want it. We want someone who can know us fully, that we can be vulnerable with, who will also love us and, and not leave us. It's hard to, to give that much trust to someone. And I mean, that's what the decision to get married is. Uh, this is a person that has shown themselves to you that they are trustworthy, they, they love you, they care for you, they're in your corner, they're on your team, and, and they're committed to you. Um, you know, they're not going to abandon you, they're not going to betray you. That is the safest person to be vulnerable with and let them know who you are and just be uncovered with. It should be the safest person. And, and you know, we live in in an imperfect world, and that may not be the case. And maybe some of you have experienced that, where you've, you've given that trust, and that trust has been betrayed or broken. And I don't mean at the level of, like, uh, your spouse failed you in some way, or they were unloving to you in some way, um, because, again, everyone's imperfect, and, and you should expect in your marriage they are going to fail me at some point. Uh, they will be unloving at some point. And what you want is to be able to give each other grace when that happens, forgive one another when that happens, work through it when that happens. That's what you hope for. But there are some things that can really destroy your trust. Um, trust is one of those things that takes a very long time to build up and strengthen, and it could be destroyed in a moment. There was a time that uh, Megan and I were walking on the beach together. Very romantic. And uh, we're walking, and we see, like, this kind of half sand castle with no one really around it on the way, uh, like, in our path. And I'm just kind of walking around it a bit, but Megan gets her eye on it, and she, like, stutter steps so she can line up her stride, and she smashes it. And what she failed to notice was the toddler with a bucket of wet sand, like, 10 feet away, coming up with his dad. And, uh, you know, thankfully, the dad thought it was hilarious. Like, he knew. He knew that she had no idea that, like, this was actively being worked on. Um, but she, like, smushed it, destroyed it. And, uh, you know, she never would have done that on purpose, I think. Um, you know, but his castle was gone. It's easier to rebuild a sandcastle than, than trust. But trust, trust can be rebuilt. It can be rebuilt. Um, the length of time that takes depends on what the betrayal was, what the breaking of that trust was. Um, this is, again, where we have to remember and, and should even be comforted by the fact that the primary source of that intimacy in your life and the person you give the greatest trust to uh, should not be your spouse. 
like Tim Keller says, it should actually be God, like being loved by God. That's being loved by Jesus, what he describes. Marriage is a great thing, and it's a great blessing, but people are imperfect, and your spouse uh, cannot perfectly meet all your needs. This is the same pattern that I've used in the last three sermons, and I'm just, it's gonna go the, the whole way through the Song of Songs because it just fits for how it's written. Um, because we're now gonna see the wisdom that God gives us for marriage and joy and intimacy, and we're gonna see how are those things perfectly given to us in Jesus. Perfectly given to us in Jesus. And, and maybe some of you are here today and you're not a Christian or um, you know, you're exploring faith and exploring Jesus, but you're not committed yet. And what I'd imagine, some of you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you, you listen to what I'm saying and you could say, you know, that sounds good, it sounds fine, uh, but I just don't think that's the way that the real world works. Like from what I've seen in the real world, maybe in your own experience or people that you know in their experiences, um, this sounds a little bit innocent and, and naive to think that like y- you make the decision to get married and this is what your marriage is gonna be. Uh, and it is true because the Song of Songs is showing us the ideal. And we don't live in an ideal world. We live in a broken world. This world is broken because of the sinful people in it. Every person is a sinner. In our sinfulness, we don't care about the authority of God and, and we don't we don't want to listen to what God says about marriage or about anything else. We just kind of want to make our own decisions and go our own way. So yeah, you know, taking all that time and that effort to build up a foundation of trust for this intimacy to be uncovered with this person and let them know everything about you, that's a lot of work. It's not easy. It's delayed gratification. And like there, you might have a lingering doubt. How can I really fully trust this person anyways? What if they leave? What if they walk away from me? Uh, or like that thing about what I should be doing in marriage is placing a higher importance on my spouse's joy than my own. Like that, that sounds like a good idea, but what if, what if they don't do that for me? Or what if they stop doing that for me? And then no one's looking out for my joy. Well, then I have to look out for my own. I have to be selfish for my own self-preservation, right? Uh, Here's the good news. Although, uh, even the best marriage on earth is shared between two imperfect people, and so it's not a perfect marriage, they're not gonna have perfect joy, and they're not gonna have perfect intimacy and trust. It's It's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to be the perfect source of that for you. The true source is found in Jesus and your relationship with him. And this is true whether you are single, dating, engaged, married, divorced, widowed, whatever it is. You can have a relationship with the one who is perfect and who perfectly loves you, who perfectly meets these needs. You take joy. Jesus, Jesus loves you. Jesus delights in you. Uh, the, the way the man in the Song of Songs says, you are beautiful. There's no flaw in you. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. Like, that's, that's how Jesus looks at you. 
That's how God looks at you. Not that he um, is unable to see like your sins and your flaws. He can see that. But, but when he's looking at you, he's also seeing the thing that he's, he's making you to be. Like through his grace and your relationship with him and his work in your heart, like that process of sanctification, he sees who you will be one day. And he sees that flaw, flawless beauty in you. And he's captivated by you. He just loves that, that, that you also love him. Uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he's writing about you know, running your own race, Hebrews chapter 12, but then he says this, running your own race, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Like for the joy that's set before him, for the church that he'd be gaining, the people, his bride that he'd be gaining through his work of redemption, he poured himself out on the cross. He went there, he stood in our place, he pays the debt that we owe so that we could be forgiven and set free. It was a sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice Jesus is obligated to make. Like whether he wants to or not, he has to go to the cross. He doesn't have to go to the cross. He chooses to go to the cross for your sake. He, he places a higher level of importance on your eternal joy that you would be saved and forgiven and brought to be with him for eternity. Higher importance on that than his own personal joy and where he was before he came down, that he was seated on the throne of heaven. He didn't have to suffer anything. And yet, because he so valued you and your eternal joy, he came down. You can have joy in Jesus. You can delight yourself in Jesus because you always have him and you always have his delight in you. Like when you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, the, the Apostle Paul, and when he's writing the letter to the Philippian church, he's writing it from prison, and it's like notorious for being a letter that's just full of joy, and he's telling them rejoice always, rejoice always, um, and he's not in circumstances that are like great. When you're in prison, that's not usually the place where people go like, yes, it's all coming together, <laughs> you know? Like my plans are working out. This is exactly where I wanted to be. Like it's, it's an, it, at, at the very least, it's a big obstacle and interruption to whatever your plans were. Um, but he's sitting there in prison, and he's saying, I can rejoice always. Why? Because no matter what the circumstances around me are, whether, you know, uh, I'm in prison or I'm not in prison, whether I'm having a really easy marriage right now or a really difficult marriage right now, like, no matter what the circumstances are, I always have Jesus. I always have his love for me. I always have his forgiveness. I always have that salvation. I always have the purpose that he gives me. I always have the hope of eternal life, the promise that he's making all things new. He is the perfect source of joy. And he offers the, the best and most perfect intimate connection with him that, that fulfills that deep need that I want someone to know me and I want someone to love me and tell me that that I'm worth it, that I'm worth being loved. Nothing is hidden about you from Jesus. Like we hide and we cover ourselves up. Jesus sees everything. He knows everything about us. And he still truly loves you and embraces you and accepts you. 
He knows, he knows the, the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Uh, you, you can't lie to him because he sees right through it. Like, he knows you better than you know yourself. The lies that you tell yourself to justify things, um, th- those don't work on him. He knows you better than you know yourself. And, and trust, that's something that we earn, right? It's something that the way that you build trust is by demonstrating I'm worthy of trusting. Like, I'm proving myself to be trustworthy. I'm sticking with you. I'm caring about you. I'm not betraying you. Like, the longer that you do those things, the stronger that trust becomes. Well, how's this for for trusting Jesus? Knowing everything about you, nothing being hidden, he has the choice. Abandon you or commit to you. Abandoning you means... He suffers nothing at all. Committing to you means he goes to the cross because that's what it takes in order to have you. I just said this before, and I always want to be careful when I say things like this. Um, I said, you know, Jesus knows everything about you and he, he loves you and embraces you and accepts you. That's true, but I don't want to be misleading that um, accepting you does not mean accepting everything about you and that you're fine the way you are. You don't have to change. Everyone has sinned and, and we all in our sin, we have these things that we're holding on to. We need to let them go. We need to give them to Jesus so that on the cross he can make the payment for those things. Like the, what, what it means to be known and accepted by Jesus is nothing he sees in you is reason enough for him to say, I don't, I don't want you. Nothing is reason enough for him to say that. He still wants you, knowing, knowing everything about you. And now you need to trust him and give those things to him so that he can pay for them so that you could be forgiven and you could receive all the, the love and the joy and the trust and the intimacy that he has to offer for all eternity. We are made to know Jesus, our creator, our creator who made us, who loves us, and who went to the cross for us so that we could be with him forever. That's our purpose, to know him and to enjoy him forever. And that's the offer that he makes to us. The more that you know Jesus, and we know him through his word, we, we know him through the, the experience of following him in our lives. The more that you know Jesus, the more that you see what he's done for you and how good he is, the more that you will be able to trust him. And the more comfortable you'll be with him. I don't need to hide when I sin. I can go to him. I don't need to try and make it better. I can just go to him. And no, like, he went to the cross for me. It's not going to be the final straw that I'm finally done with you. No, he loves you, he's embraced you, he's committed to you. You can have all the joy that you were made to receive and all that, that intimate connection that affirms your value that you've ever wanted in Jesus. And maybe for some of you today, if you're on that that path where you're exploring faith and you're exploring who Jesus is and you're hearing this and this is new for you, maybe this would encourage you that, that you can trust him. 
you can see all the love that he has for you and say, I want, I want that. I want that to be the primary source of joy in my life, the primary source of this, this intimate connection. He's never going to fail me. And maybe you get to start walking with him today. Let me pray for us.